Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview policymakers, scholars, business executives to talk about issues in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, here in the studio with me is uh, president of Princeton's investment company, Prinko, uh, the CIO of Prinko, Mr. Andy Golden. Uh, he will be talking about university endowment, uh, some of the investment strategies that Prinko currently uses, and some of the issues that we're seeing uh, in the finance world today and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, Mr. Golden. My my pleasure. Uh, and, and also together with me, co-hosting this episode is a good friend of mine, Arsh. Uh, he is a junior in Princeton and uh, in the Department of Operations Research and Financial Engineering. Uh, he interned at Prinko and should be able to bring us some wonderful insights along the way as well. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Arsh. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mr. Golden. You guys have to stop calling me Mr. Golden. Uh, Andy works better? Uh, Andy's good. Okay. Uh, Sparky works as well. Sparky. Always makes me very nervous when it when I, because I call like a twenty six year old professor, you know, professor something, and I call you Andy. That you know, it's it's the contrast. It's hard to adapt. Yeah, to. it's not really the age you should be worried about. It's the mileage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks so much, Andy. Uh, so why don't we just uh, start with, I guess, the very broad question. Uh, what do you do? What does Prinko do? Uh, what are some of your uh, overall investment philosophies, philosophy on, on uh, running Prinko? Uh, and we can make it a free-flow conversation from there on. Okay. So um, as I mentioned to you when we are walking over here, uh, Prinko is actually part of the university. It's called an investment company for whatever reason, but we're all very proud to be university employees. And we're uh, charged with uh, investing the university's endowment, which is about $26 billion. And we act as a manager of managers. So we're doing very little um, direct investing, um, picking one security over the other. Uh, what we are doing is um, thinking about the big picture, um, getting agreement on a general big picture plan with what's known as the Prinko Board. And then we're executing. We have trigger-pulling authority to handle all matters of execution, which in our case, as I said, is primarily involved in creating a roster of um, a little bit uh, less than, uh, uh, fewer than uh, 60 managers all over the world. And what we do is we um, try and uh, partner and partner uh, partnering, partnership, partner is a word you'll hear a lot coming from me. We're trying to partner with the people who are the very best at what they do within a particular niche, or if they're not already the very best, uh, it's a good bet that they will become uh, the very best. And in that way, we can assure that the hands on the wheels of each of our ships and our uh, in our fleet uh, really are the most most skilled. So the job's pretty interesting because. Uh, it's really about figuring out who to partner with and then partnering with them well. Uh, we work hard uh, with those managers. We've developed a pretty good reputation as being a value-add client. There's a there's a, a old saying uh, that good clients make for good architects, and we believe that good clients also make for good uh, uh, money managers. Um, now, in terms of value-add for ways that we can help, we're actually – fairly unusual. I wouldn't say um, there are many like us. Uh, I'll give an example of uh, um, we helped uh, create a, a, a venture uh, capital firm uh, in Asia and uh, recognized that it was going through some um, kind of typical growing pains um, that firms go through 
a decade into their forming, and um, we thought they would benefit by having a um, an organizational coach. So we hooked them up with a Boston-based organizational coach that flew out and helped them think through some of the challenges, uh, which actually led to the departure of one of the founding members, um, which we had identified as someone who probably needed to go. Um, So that's about as engaged as you you get. Um, A common thing that we're doing now um, uh, involves firms that are going through their own succession planning. And since we've seen other movies like that, uh, we're able to be an honest broker as the two generations of leadership um, figure out what the path forward is. So we work um, side by side with them, helping make each other uh, better than uh, otherwise. And um, uh, with, then we're also you know, responsible for that kind of coordination of those efforts. The job is really interesting. It's uh, one of the four reasons why I love my job is that the intellectual challenge is so special because we need to understand assets, but we also need to understand people and organizations and how they work. Uh, so, um, you know, there really is this kind of very rich, multidimensional uh, engagement uh, across those lines. Our um, philosophy is um, to really think about you know, importantly, what are we trying to achieve? What are our circumstances as an investor? Uh, the endowment has a, a very different um, financial need than an 80-year-old retiree. So we're trying to think about what we're trying to achieve and then what our competitive positioning is, what our advantages are, and, and where um, are we you know, less advantaged, and uh, build an approach around, around that. Uh, so just to dig a little bit deeper in, into the process of picking managers, uh, picking those partnerships, uh, how exactly do you go about it? How do you actually evaluate a, a fund manager? Would you mind just speaking a little bit uh, into more details of the, those processes? Well, I've got uh, 20 uh, colleagues who are on the investment team. Um, another similar amount uh, are involved in our success in different ways and supporting us through operations and administration and technology. Uh, but the investment colleagues uh, were all you know, gang-tackling uh, the search for these managers and then the, the work with these uh, our managers. And in the search and identification, we're really focused uh, first and foremost on a qualitative analysis. We have a lot of quant skills on the team I myself am a recovering quant, um, but it's um, amazing. Uh, you would be surprised at how little the quant, how little of a role that the, the quant analysis plays. Certainly, the very superficial, who has done well in the past, um, uh, kind of rearview mirror analysis is um, very minimal. Uh, if you dissect. Um, some of the numbers, you can get a bit more information, which we combine in a, if you'll bear with me, Bayesian way, and I mean that stylistically. Uh, there's not a, a lot of you know, formulas being um, uh, calculated, but we combine that uh, with the uh, priors, if you will, that we've developed through the, the qualitative assessment. 
So, uh, so going back to the question that there was, you mentioned that LPs are considered a value add, and then you mentioned the well, hinge. We are. Not, yes. Most are. Like Prinko so much, as yeah. an LP is considered a value add to the managers. And then most of the managers that you pick and decide to work with, you analyze them on a quanti- qualitative basis and not a quantitative basis. And question that stems out of that uh, that I have is Prinko also has this ideology of theory over data. And I think that's founded and that's reflected in, in the decisions that we just talked about. So can you talk a little bit more about what are those qualitative factors and what's the disadvantage, if any, of not using any quantitative factors or if they can be used at all? Right. Uh, well, let me deal with that last bit first. I, I did admit that we do a little bit of quant. Right. Um, so we are, it would, it would be unfair to say that we're not using that. Um, and there's another role of the quant, which is just to provide a language, a vocabulary, which we can discuss things. So um, that can be used in uh, what your Orphe friends would describe as a mean variance analysis, or maybe even we might dabble in Monte Carlo work. Um, but that's really to kind of illustrate some bigger picture um, issues. The reason we prefer theory over data um, is kind of a saying I've used elsewhere, if the uh, data don't support the theory, then the data are wrong, right? Um, you have to understand that data are collected within a theoretical framework, and so they can get they can get skewed by um, that. Uh, but uh, particularly importantly, um, the data that one has available is uh, typically a drop in the bucket of what you would need to really have strong conviction based upon data alone. And uh, as you get more, then you have a premise that the underlying process creating that data is stable. And in markets, uh, particularly private markets, uh, that is a a fairly uh, uh, dubious premise, right? So, so the question that kind of stems out of that is, I think there are two different levels of uh, data and theory analysis that we're talking about. Uh, data and theory analysis happening at the Prinko level when picking the managers, so analyzing theoretically how a manager looks like, how their company structure that you mentioned, and a few other things, the indicators in that domain. And then you mentioned also the private markets, right? So that becomes the GP portion, like how does a GP make the investments or how do your managers make the investment? So are we talking about the usage of like more qualitative analysis while picking the managers? Or are we talking about looking for managers that make more qualitative analysis when making their decisions? So you can be a fundamentally oriented manager and have your decision processes aided by data. And we love that. That's very different than hiring a manager that is purely quant. Uh, We have an allergy to hiring black box processes. And it is almost, um, not almost, it really reflects a... um, epistemological issue of like, we're not saying no one can be good at that. Uh, We're saying it's very hard to know who's going to be good at that. And if the process is a black box, then when it goes through a rough patch, and it's hard to imagine an investment selection process that won't go through a rough patch, you have nothing to hang your hat on other than past results. Uh, Again, when we're dealing with systems like markets, and I know there are smart people who have had successful investment careers who would argue against this, um, but um, as an aside, 
you really, um, you know, a, a core element of our philosophy is you have to run your own race. So when you're dealing with markets as opposed to fluids like, you know, gases and things, there's a self-referential element to it. And so the, the, the markets kind of um, feed on themselves. Uh, a very simplistic uh, illustration maybe is helpful. If you have a good theory that stocks with a certain characteristic low price to book outperform, so you start screening for that, then at some point the market kind of begins to recognize that and other people, you know, begin to buy those stocks and that drives prices up and that means that that particular factor is not going to work anymore. So systems have to be dynamic and that's where the uncertainty about whether or not a quantitative system has evolved well comes into play. There may be folks who can do that, but we don't need to be in all games. We don't need to okay. invest in all all arenas. And our approach actually enables us to cover a large share of the waterfront in a fairly intellectually, internally consistent manner. So we can just let that quant stuff go. Makes sense. So so like to kind of boil it down, so we we're saying that we like quantitative, qualitative over quantitative on both sides, like on Prinko's side and on the managers kind of that Prinko selects, but like, and this is this is kind of an assumption that I've kind of made out of this, and that assumption grows along the lines of that Prinko does place a lot of trust in their managers. So to what degree is Prinko involved in the decisions that the managers make? So let's say a manager decides in XYZ asset class, this happens to be a good investment. Does Prinko go in and try to like analyze that investment thesis, or Prinko decides that the manager has had good past results and has a good track record and we can trust the thesis of that manager? Yeah, I think we're conflating um, a couple of things here. So we want to understand the whys behind what they're doing. It is through understanding the whys that we can really get a sense of that return-generating engine. That is different from trying to control it. We can make suggestions, say, hey, you know, we've seen others do similar things, and they run into these type of problems typically. Tell me what you're doing to avoid those type of problems. And so, you know, our engagement is really, you know, rolling up our sleeves and understanding what they're doing. But the end is not to argue about that particular decision. Or if we're arguing about it, we're doing it to just kind of tease out the rigor of the thinking behind it, not to suggest that they should do something differently. If, if we're managing their portfolio, then we shouldn't be hiring them. Right. So, so what kind of, uh, I guess, uh, decision or, or um, thesis do you form based on the, the kind of thinking, the ways of thinking that the managers make? For example, we've seen in the past year or two uh, – market valuation, private market valuation for private equity and venture capitalism are, are, are at an all-time high. Um, you are seeing this kind of bubble that's kind of blowing up, you know, with Uber, where, where work, whatever. So when you selected some of those managers, do you go, oh, I, I really don't think the private equity industry should be heading towards this kind of direction um, right now? I mean, maybe you guys are right when it comes to picking specific industries like tech or whatever, but, but this is not really going where we decide. So, so how do you actually form that? Um, thesis when it comes to whether the managers are heading towards a direction that that, that uh, s- seem to be right. Yeah, I think it's a bit more nuanced. It's not like do this, don't do that. It's explain what consideration you've given to these factors and how you're uh, adapting, how you're you know modifying your behavior. 
if you want to kind of run with the venture capital theme, if you're an actual venture capitalist, you know, you've got several challenges, including winning the hearts and minds of entrepreneurs. And if you are known as someone who is kind of in or out of the market, depending upon your prediction for the, the broad theme, then you are considered an unreliable partner to those entrepreneurs. And so that would not be a recipe for success. And um, there's a analogy to our involvement with venture capitalists. If we got in and out of venture capital based upon our predictions of these broad themes, uh, then we would be considered an unreliable source of funds. And... Um, we would not be able to get the, um, the access. Trust. Yeah, the, and- I guess the interesting thing that we're kind of seeing is that there is a kind of a hubris, uh, arrogance among a lot of those investors and funds because there's so much money in the market these days. And then those VC funds say, we are the kingmakers and we provide the capital and, and, and the access for those entrepreneurs. So it's, not, it's less about those entrepreneurs making wonderful products, but rather we giving them access and capital. But I don't think that's the, that's the way Prinko thinks of that way. To, to the managers. And I also feel like, you know, this kind of culture of prep, propping founders and entrepreneurs at, at a sort of a pedestal, you know, giving them super voting shares and, and, and et cetera, the, the, those phenomena we're seeing in the past, past couple of years uh, regarding the private market is also kind of somewhat toxic. Uh, I, I don't know if that's, that's uh, from an LP's perspective, you're, you're, uh, what do you make of all this? Yeah, so I think... Um, there's always a difficulty when discussing investing, uh, maybe in discussing anything, that you have to speak in generalities in order to have the conversation fit within a reasonable time frame. Yeah. Uh, we, um, I don't disagree, at least I don't disagree completely with some of the concerns that you, you've expressed about the industry of venture capital. Um, there are several areas in our portfolio where we say we would not invest at all in that area if we were condemned to invest in all of the area. We would not invest at all if we were condemned to invest in all of it. And um, I think that, you know, venture capital is the case of that, the kind of world of hedge funds is the case of that. Um, our approach is based upon uh, the confidence, what some might call even the arrogance, that we can identify who the very best are and get access to them and then perhaps help make them better. So I don't think um, we invest in any venture capitalist who has um, anything close to the attitude that you described of we are the kingmakers. Uh, in fact, if it's a recurring theme, it's a respect for the entrepreneur. So there may be a little bit more of a risk, emphasis in the words, a little bit more of the risk of your kind of putting folks up on a pedestal. Um, you know, frankly, what we're looking for is um, in that quality of assessment is how people do engage with people in those situations. Um, you know, um, there's kind of multi-levels of coaching here. We're um, think about the venture capitalist as coaching the entrepreneurs. And the entrepreneur is on the field. The entrepreneur is going to have to make some decisions that the coach can't make for her. Um, but um, 
uh, you know, a good coach kind of figures out how to uh, operate and uh, create guidance so that uh, players don't get hurt. I, I guess an immediate follow-up to, to that kind of question is that how do you um, think through the ethics of endowment investing in the sense that what kind of funds you pick that you make sure they are, whether it's socially uh, responsible or environmentally friendly or whatever, um, how do you make that kind of decision? Because there's so much discussion when it comes to divestments, when it comes to joining uh, actions, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to uh, non-investing in certain geopolitical geographical areas and and things like that. So I don't, um, how, how do you see Prinko playing a role in that at all? Well, let me um, propose a kind of framing of your question that I think, as I said, we're condemned to speaking generalities. Um, but I want to parse a little bit uh, this word ethics because I think you can break it down into the, the day-to-day activity of do you behave in a good way? Do you treat your partners well? Uh, versus political statements. So I would, uh, to the extent that your listeners are part of the Princeton community, and even if they're not, I would direct them to the um, webpage that's uh, uh, for the resources committee uh, of the university, or the resources committee is actually part of the CPUC. Um, and there, there, um, there's a, a letter written by President Eisgruber and... Um, a memo format, um, uh, a memo written by me that um, tries to make the distinction, I think succeeds in making the distinction uh, about uh, ground-level ethical behavior versus uh, political statement. Right. So um, to um, summarize the kind of ground-level behavior, I'm going back to that word partnership. So we are investing with managers who we believe will be good partners to us. Uh, we believe, one of the reasons we believe they'll be good partners with, with us is that um, operating with a sense of partnership comes naturally to them. It's how they, they treat their their, uh, their their work. And so they're going to be investing in companies um, and looking at the management of those companies and say, do those managers have a sense of partnership? And a sense of partnership for... Um, say a CEO is to give some amount of consideration to various stakeholders, various constituencies. It doesn't mean that you give equal weight to it, but that would mean thinking not just about the shareholders, but thinking about your workers and thinking about your customers and about the people in the um, you know local area in which you operate. Um, and that's where I uh, want to kind of return the word ethics to its original meaning as opposed to it being one more form of phrase, socially responsible, ethical investing, impact investing. Those are um, uh, are various attempts over the, um, over the ages to, to get a, a sense of uh, having a portfolio of investments um, um, pretty much make a statement beyond money making. Um, and the view that uh, is very well expressed by President Eisgruber is um, something along the lines of, uh, as a university, 
we need to be careful about having official political statements in general. Uh, is, is there a reason behind that? Any specific thoughts as to why that's the case? Well, I think it's become all the more obvious today than it was when I was a student that um, universities, colleges played a very important, they play several important roles in society, but one of them is to be a locus of debate, right? But like to add to that point, President Eisgruber did also make a political statement joining uh, the chairman of Microsoft recently against certain working right. legislation. Right. So, so I, I said we have to be careful. I didn't say we'd never do it. And in his letter, he lays out that the area that the university should be most comfortable in making political statements are things that relate to its core business of education. So the joining in uh, in the DACA, DACA yeah. is clearly relates to <laughs> our core business of of students and professors and uh, and such. So he very explicitly lays out that that is the area where we have standing, um, uh, or most likely to have standing, as opposed to some other um, you know uh, political arena. Andy, I just want to slightly push back on this idea because I feel like there are two dimensions here. One is the political statement. The other is just um, ethical investing. And I think they don't have to be mutually exclusive in the sense that Pringle could potentially say, all right, we're going to... We're not going to invest in any fossil fuel companies. We're, we're whatever, right? C- certain parts of it. I don't think that's like making a political statement, but that's just saying um, that's just how we think we could best impact the world while also making return. And um, you know, we don't think we're we're making a stance here. That's just a that's just a decision we made. And if we said we don't think we're making a stance, we'd be wrong. We are, in fact, making a stance by doing that, right? Um, and 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 what's what's wrong with that? Well, you were just saying that probably doesn't align with university philosophy in terms of making uh, political s- statements. Well, um, let me come at this a couple of ways. Okay. Um, let me um, uh, imagine, if you will, there's a knock on the door and a divine being, an obviously divine being comes in. Uh, maybe it's because they're like a burning bush type of thing that can still walk, but it's obviously divine. And it says to you, or they say to you, um, here is a box with a dial on it. Um, you get to set that dial. The dial has dates and set it to the date. And after that date, no fossil fuels will be extracted from the world. Question is, what date do you set that for? So I get to choose when we stop using when, fossil fuels. It's not even Princeton divesting. It's the world just stops using fossil fuels. Where do you set that dial? Do you set it for today? Five years from now. Uh, that's how I would You I think was... five years is enough time for us to find another way for jet airplanes I don't fly. think so. I don't I don't think so. So I'm you're not. saying in 5 years you would stop air travel. No, I I, I don't think that's what I'm saying. I, I thought the the thought experiment the premise is that you know we could um we could assume that once we get rid of it the the, the world would still function. But what you're no, asking no, is I, that I, oh, you're I, asking I, me I'm to make asking, a prediction when it comes to when I'm not asking you to make a prediction. You have power. So you have to decide. Right? You have to 
actually not just make a political I mean, statement, make a political decision of when you're going to stop extracting fossil fuels. I, I, I would say that I would be a little bit more cautious than that. And obviously, fossil fuel is a very grand term, and there are more nuanced things involved when it comes to uh, you know, whether it's natural gas or, or whatever. But, but I think the, the idea here is that but that's a technical debate. That's a that's a scientific debate. That's a policymaking debate. That's not a. I, I don't think that it's conflicts a, it's with a, it's the a policy question. You know, and policy sounds a little bit political here, right? When would you? Right. It's a hard. It's a hard question. It's, it's a, a hard, hard question, but it's not today. It's not today. And so therefore, disassociating or attempting to disassociate is not possible. And divesting, which is a subset of dissociating, would be just a statement that doesn't really work. Doesn't really seem to be consistent. Because if we stopped extracting fuels today, there would be some serious negative consequences. And so the politics of saying stop being engaged in that is saying that you value some aspects of life over other aspects of life. Well, so let me, if, if, if we're getting this right, the, the ultimate argument that we're trying to make here is that the part of Prinko money goes to an XYZ place, not only because it helps increase the endowment for very good reasons, but also mainly because if it doesn't go there, there will be negative consequences. Prinko is charged with making money to support the social good at the university. Agreed. Okay. And um, at the micro level, let me give an example of a micro decision. Um, someone invests in a company where the management says, you know, it's cheaper for us to pay the fine to OSHA than to create a, work, a safe workplace. We don't do that, right? That is- That's un- obvious, yeah. That's unethical. Yeah. Fair, yeah. Right? agreed, yes. Right. Um, but to make a political statement is above our pay grade. Only the trustees can decide to do that because they made, you know, the, the university, the institution had made promises to the donors over the last couple of centuries yeah. that your money is going to further a particular social good. And it wasn't to do anything else in terms of political statements uh, unless it was about education. So like yeah, a hypothetical case, uh, trustees one day... Uh, I think Harvard signed a climate, climate, climate change action yes, pledge yeah. or something. Their yeah. Harvard Capital Management trustees one day finally decide that this has to happen. We need to take a call to divest, quote unquote. Do you think the endowment suffers in that case, or do you think that Prinko, as as an investment company, is strong enough that if they have to divest and given enough time today, they can move on to a platform wherein they still keep their strong returns and still stay the industry leaders? So, the issue here is not about any one particular element, right? It's where we set the bar for those divestments, right? So um, if we start divesting in from fossil fuels because that's important, and then we uh, you know, think about other things, um, tobacco, maybe alcohol, maybe you, know, you can start sugary drinks cause a lot of problems, right? The, the question of at some point, the opportunity set gets constrained in a very meaningful way. It gets constrained immediately in a um, theoretical way. And it's interesting because if you're going to make the political statement, you actually shouldn't care about the diminished returns, 
Right. In other words, it should be so important to you, right? You, you can't have it both ways, right? Because if you are, and I'll, um, you know, I'm looking at my Orphe friend here. If you add a constraint to an optimization, you get a suboptimal result compared to the unconstrained, right? And so, th- therefore, it, it shouldn't matter. It's, it, it's a, it, it's, it's a a kind of frustrating line of argument to say, well, you'll find something else to um, uh, uh, invest in. I, I guess I'll t- we'll take a step back. I, I, Andy, I don't mean to come at you at all. For, and, and, and Arsh and I here, we don't have like a particular stance. We don't have a stance. We're just trying uh, yeah, to we're, understand the decision-making process. But, but I guess... I am not concerned. That, that, <laughs> what, what about something like this? Because I, as a, as a college student, I sometimes discuss those issues when, when, about finance with my friends and I have fundamental doubts on you know whether I should... Um, do certain things if I were to become an investor. For example, if I were an investor in Facebook and I made a lot of money uh, and my fund became really famous, I wouldn't feel particularly good about it in the sense that I don't think we, we could argue that certain companies or certain products or certain investments uh, have a net negative impact on the world. And I was just thinking whether you know when when Prinko makes decisions, do, do you ever come in with the with the um, normative? I guess ethics, ethical kind of judgment or view. I mean, it doesn't seem like you guys are, are politically keen in terms of making political statements when it comes to, um, you know, you, you know, uh, fossil fuel industry or things like that. But let's say if you get the chance to invest in Instagram or not, um, or or Facebook or not, or things like that. How do you make that kind of decisions? I, I'm not coming um, from a perspective with with already having a predetermined answer. I, I don't know how to figure those questions out. So. It turns out it's not my money, right? So we're hired, as I said, to produce the returns that are necessary for producing the social good that Princeton University is distinctively capable of producing. You just mentioned that you wouldn't feel good about Facebook. Exactly, yeah. And that somewhat makes my point about... Suboptimal returns. ...about the kind of slippery slope. So... We're not going to do fossil fuels. We're not going to do Facebook. We're not going to do a lot of other things. A lot of other things. And now you're starting to constrain yourself. And the question is, whose values um, you really get to determine that? So again, I'm contrasting that from the micro level. Yeah, there are certain ways of making decisions that we don't want to be involved with. That's totally fair. Um, Yeah. You know. Do you use Apple products? I do. Yeah. Do you have any concerns about the supply chain of Apple? Absolutely. That's the so thing. I, I don't know. So you're less concerned about the things that you purchase than the things that you're investing in? Um, th- that's how I was saying. I, what, I think what, what I was saying was that uh, our world has become so interconnected and tangled, uh, especially for something like finance, which kind of sits in the center of all, that all kinds of financial decisions you make kind of have direct, indirect impacts on products, on companies, on, on ethical debates and stuff, that I f- find a hard time knowing if I ever become an investor, whether I throw a, mil- a million bucks at this, uh, in, like this company, whether I'm doing social good or making an impact that will make my, me go to bed at night. I, I don't know. Uh, and and I, that's what I'm saying. Is I, I think it's a very hard way to quantify. I don't know if you guys have any ways to quantify. You personally feel any ways to quantify those things. So um, I get back to the micro level of how are you thinking about 
um, investing as opposed to this statement. So if you weren't in your example, it sounds like you were a little queasy about profiting from Facebook, but you weren't going to avoid it because you thought Facebook would change its ways. I would avoid it if I were an investor. I would try my best not but, to. But it was it was more about how you felt and not that you were going to impact Facebook because Facebook, your million dollars that you were um, throwing at. I, it. I would be making a statement to the world by saying I'm not going to invest in it. I'm going to I'm not going to endorse in this kind of particular kind of business model, etc. Uh, and things like that. I, I think we're down a slippery slope again. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. just <laughs> going to come down to the point of like that explicitly becomes a political statement about something that is yeah, yeah. like, but. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story that you know we include in the um, uh, in the memo. I think we include. You know, we invest with a, a venture capital firm that uh, years ago made a decision to not invest in Yik Yak, and this was back when it was fairly new. Um, a lot of the venture capitalists had um, uh, kids who were kind of middle school age, and they said like, "This is just so obviously going to be a, a bullying thing." That, you know, we just won't feel good about doing that, All right? So, our job is to make money for the and to invest with people who produce great returns. Yeah. And in that case, um, they uh, uh, viewed themselves as capable of producing great returns without doing that. We, Princeton University, were not making a political statement about social media. It was just a, a low-level decision, and that's you know when we talk about it, it's important to keep money. I don't want to give the impression that we're operating as these, and we're partnering with people who are on the batons that are just kind of driven to the to the flame of you know like moths to the flame of money. That, that, uh, that totally but that's sense. very different. And yeah. and you know when you talk to uh, people who are interested in the university divesting um, from anything, uh, you know, there, there are kind of three possible arguments that are uh, involved there. One is that uh, we will actually create a capital boycott that will force the company to change its ways. And that's fairly unrealistic. So um, another is that we're going to um, use our bully pul pul pulpit that you know we're going to make literally going to make a political statement that will impact the world on something like climate change. You got to be careful because the part of the world that needs convincing on this issue, right, um, already believe that science is fake because it was created under a political agenda, right. So you might actually make the problem worse uh, if Princeton University takes that stand. And then the third is I just want to have clean hands. Right, and the question is, whose hands are who hands get to be clean? That right, it's a community. Um, you know that um, there are many people in this community who are opposed to divestment. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'd love to ask you one more question about the private equity industry and, and university endowments, and also tying into some of the recent debates when it comes to inequality. I think there are people who criticize university endowments for, you know, having a huge endowment and uh, having great returns every year, not paying as much tax as, as some of the other, you know, funds, and then a lot of times they're just hoarding this money because they're not technically spending as much as they they could on a, a lot of things. Those are one aspect of the criticism. I, I don't I don't take a stance on that, but I would, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what, right, what why, do you... why don't we start with the size of the endowment? Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, you know, maybe we should have started with this in the beginning, like just what is the endowment, right? So the endowment has a mission of supplying as large a share of the budget as it can, consistent with, in other words, spend, the endowment is meant to be spent. We want to spend as much of it as possible, consistent with two constraints. One is that what we call intergenerational equity, that it should supply the same benefit to students and teachers 100 years from now as it does today, kind of per, per gift. We don't bail out old gifts with new gifts. And the other is that that spending stream that's being released to the budget has to be fairly stable. Uh, we, the endowment pays for more than 60% of everything that goes on at Princeton University. Um, so that task of spending as much as you can, but while preserving purchasing power into perpetuity and doing it in a, in a uh, stable way creates an incredibly difficult return objective. I'm going to go a little circular in my reasoning here, but you'll see where I'm coming from in a second. Let's, let's just uh, say that maybe it's possible to spend about 5% of the endowment each year. So start with that, and then think about inflation. Pick a number for inflation. What do you think inflation is going to be over the next 150 years? Let's call it 3, 4, all right? So compound 5 and 4. And then recognize that to get something approximating that 8 9%, you have to expose yourself to investments that have variable returns. In fact, sometimes have down years. So heuristically speaking, meaning this isn't exactly how it works, but it's close enough for a podcast, you have to overshoot that because you're going to continue to spend when you have low returns or even negative returns. So even if there's a market rebound, you're not going to fully participate in that rebound because something's been spent. So all this is saying you've got to get returns that, depending upon what your inflation number is, kind of bordering on the kind of 10% number, and you got to do that forever. That's at 5%. So the reason uh, I just had to enter somewhere, so I'll get back to, that's why 5% seems like an ambitious goal, because you, that 5% equates to something like a 10% return yeah. forever. Yeah. So I bristle at the notion that we're hoarding. I know you're reporting others would say that, but we're spending as much as we can consistent with preserving for the future. If you were to go to the, that uh, Google machine, there's something called like the World Wide Web, I hear, yeah. Yeah? and just ask the question, how much money should I save for retirement? You would pretty quickly get to these rules of thumb uh, that say you should figure out what you're going to consume while in retirement, maybe subtract out what you think you're going to get from Social Security, now come up with that number, and you should have assets set aside that will enable that number to be about 4%, right? So in other words, multiply it by 25. Yeah. Right. Um, that's for you as a human being. When you retire, you'll probably have 20, 25, 30 years of life ahead of you. So you get to enjoy not just living off the return, but kind of cutting into the principal along the way. Because uh, you're not going to live for, if you retire at 70, you're not going to you know, live to 120. Yeah. We don't get to do that. You have to we live, live on forever. To, you have to live on forever, <laughs> right? So an individual is told, think about it as spending four percent, and we're spending over five on average, right? and we're doing it forever. Now, we've got some advantages. We've got 
sizable pool that enables us to uh, devote more bandwidth to thinking about how to outperform. And oh, by the way, we get to compound, at least until recently, tax-free. There's a long history of saying that institutions that are all about doing social good get to be um, uh, tax-free. That's that's your under threat right now. T- totally. Uh, I, I want to wrap up the interview just by asking you one last question. So since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, uh, I have to ask you at the end, uh, what's the punchline here for, for university endowment investing, for um, your personal investment philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, some of the ethical c- concerns we talked about today? You know, for um, university investing, I would say the punchline is invest well and do good. Right? We're, we're, you know, all about... Um, Paying for the excellence of Princeton, where you know you look at what the uh, student body looks today versus what it looked like 25 years ago when I came here, and you know we're we're seeing a improved diversity in a lot of dimensions, including uh, socioeconomic diversity. We've got a lot of way to go there, um, but you know uh, wouldn't be possible without um, the endowment. You know, for on the more personal front, I think um, the mantra is you got to run your own race, right? And that's um, where the philosophy comes in. Well, I, I think Arsh and I are personally very grateful for the university endowment paying for our <laughs> podcast and allowing <laughs> us to use the studio and everything. So, uh, we're we're very grateful for all the, all the work uh, you're doing. Um, th- thank well, you. You're so- welcome. <laughs> thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you so much for this what your time. Wonderful. Really, really appreciate the conversation. Uh, and thanks so much for for joining me today, Arsh. Uh, thank it's, you. it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, and and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on, on iTunes, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, Google Play. Visit us. On policypunchline.com and read it and re- review us. Uh, thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.